Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jenna Spinelli, one of the hosts of the Democracy Works podcast produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. We speak with Jenna today about how the media and democracy have been impacted by COVID-19, why it's important to support a free press now more than ever, and what Democracy Works podcast and the network is doing to help spread credible information and get to the root of the infodemic. Welcome, Jenna. Thanks for having me, Terry. So I signed up to be a poll worker and oh that's great actually also signed up to be a census worker because this is such an important year for the census and as you can imagine with the onset of covid and the sheltering in place orders in new york city my census outreach was temporarily suspended and the primaries were postponed in many states including my new york i wanted to start there what do you think is the role of the census and primary voting in a democracy, how does COVID impact fair and free elections? From the interviews that I've done on our show, the experts we've talked to, um, there hasn't really ever been a situation quite like this. You know, it's kind of a a three-pronged impact. There's, as, as you mentioned, the census happening, we have an election, you know, primary season going on right now, and of course the general election in November. Um, that's all happening in the midst of, of, of a pandemic and trying to, as you said, collect the, the census, which has to be done every year. You know, both the census and the election are mandated by the Constitution. So it's incumbent upon state governments and the, the Census Bureau, which is a, a federal entity, to try to figure out a way to make them happen. Um, and one of the really unique things about the U.S., which I've certainly learned a lot about over the past couple of months uh, on our show, is that COVID-19 really highlights the, the the system of federalism that we have in the U.S. and that how much individual states and even localities in, in some respects are responsible for not only disaster response and, and public health and these types of things, but elections are also administered on the, the state level, on the county level. They're, they're, the, the chain of command is up through the secretary of state in every state. So there's there could very well be 50 different solutions for how to conduct the election this fall. And, and so what, is, what does that mean? I think there's a lot of people that are still trying to figure that out. I think, as, as you mentioned, the Census Bureau is still trying to figure things out as well, um, from adjusting their timeline to pivoting their outreach strategies. How do you reach the communities that are traditionally hard to count when you can't go out and, and see people face to face? So we have an expert here at Penn State who is part of the Census Advisory Board, and that's something that you know she and her colleagues are, are thinking about and working with the Census Bureau on, and will continue to do so as we go through the rest of the summer. 
Actually, I think maybe we should step back a second and if you could help describe to our listeners what is the purpose of the census and why is that important to democracy in general? Sure. Uh, so I let me just preface this by saying I am not a census expert, but uh, from the the folks that I've I've talked to, you know, it is the some of the the big kind of correlation. So it, it is required uh, by the Constitution every ten years, and and one of its its main uses is for reapportionment, which is determining how uh, representatives in the House are allocated. So you know there are some states that will pick up seats in the House. There are some states that will lose seats in the House, um, depending on how their population changes from 2020 back to to 2010. Um, states also use it to uh, do to reapportionment on on their for their own uh, state legislatures. The census data also informs the redistricting process that will occur. If any of your listeners are familiar with gerrymandering, um, there's there's been a big effort to um, draw maps um, in in a way that 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 benefits one political party over another. The the line people in this community like to use is. Um, the, the politicians picking their voters as opposed to the other way around, the voters picking their politicians or the folks who, who represent them in office. So that map making process will begin in 2021, uh, early next year, once the, the census count is complete. Um, so that's really important for thinking about, you know, how will people in our country be represented at, at, in state governments, in, in federal government? And so I know that people who are active in the the redistricting community are keeping a close eye on the census and doing what they can to help make sure that the census is as complete and as accurate as possible. Um, there's also implications for public school funding, um, even some some public health implications, like deciding you know where to build a hospital, for example, um, where the, the the greatest demand is. I don't I don't think that's you know solely determined by the census, of course, but you know you need to know where people live, just like when you're you're building any type of business, right? You need to understand where the the market is, where the demand is, and you know one source of, of that data is from the the census. So as we think about rural health and and all of those kind of things, it's really important to understand where people live uh, so that the governments at all levels can help determine what or what services those communities need based on how the population is allocated. So there was a controversial question on the census that has since been adjudicated, the question of citizenship, whether or not a census uh, responder is an, a U.S. citizen. Can you tell us why that's a controversial question? Why it's important for people who are proponents of leaving that question off, uh, uh, who are census workers and advocates for democracy? Sure. So uh, there is no question about citizenship on the census. Um, every census expert you talk to makes that that very clear. But you know, I think that this stems from a lot of the Trump administration's feelings about immigration and wanting to know, you know, who's a citizen and and, and who's not, and you know, tying into to some of their their broader rhetoric and strategy around immigration in in the country. And you know, I think that advocates for immigrant communities and and a whole host of, of organizations came together to say that no you know the census has to count everyone regardless of of how they got here they need to be counted and there's going to be a, a vast chilling effect on 
you know, people who are, are worried that if they complete their census, they're going to be deported or ICE is going to come for them. Um, that's not what our democracy is about. Um, you know, I, I had the chance to, to talk with um, Giselle Fetterman, who is the second lady of, of Pennsylvania. She's married to our lieutenant governor, uh, but she is a former undocumented immigrant. And, and she spoke about, um, you know, even even when she was undocumented, you know, living with her family in New York, they still completed their census and they they were proud to do so. They were proud to have that sense of civic engagement. You know, they fought to come here. Uh, and and they you know had a, a had a life that they wanted to live in in the U.S. and they saw it as a as a as a point of pride to say yes I want to stand up and be counted because it means so much to me to be here and and I think that you know for people who are advocates that's what it's it's all about right everybody needs to stand up and be counted in in our democracy and I think that was the kind of central point around um, the the fight to have that that question ultimately kept off of the census this year. So for folks in the Trump administration who may have had more stringent policies around immigration, they wanted it potentially to know where undocumented immigrants live and potentially people were fearing on the other side that it might be used as an enforcement tool. Those who are proponents of leaving that question off were hoping that it would drive greater response in all communities, including immigrant communities and communities of color. And so it really speaks to, I guess, the question of inclusivity, right? Because in order for us to properly reapportion the dollars, our federal dollars to local communities, it might require us to see clearly who is living in those communities. And if those communities reflect different colors than what our national or federal government leaders are hoping for, then that seems to be a threat. What is the role of inclusivity and diversity in a democracy? And why is it such a threat to certain people? That is a big question. Um, I, I just recently spoke with Sabil Rahman, who is the, the president of Demos and, and author of, a, of an excellent new book called Civic Power. Um, I, would, I would highly recommend uh, your listeners go in and check that one out. Um, but he kind of in that book wrestles with this question of, you know, has there ever really been a successful multi-ethnic inclusive democracy? And if you look back through history, the answer is not really. So there's always been some level level of, of inequality. And so what can we do to to make that happen? And, uh, you know, Sabil argues that it really has to start from the local level and, and from the ground up and, and giving people a sense that um, they, they have a stake in how their communities run, whether that's city council or, or local representatives or state governments, and then it'll kind of scale up from there. The bottom line underlying all of this is, is how can you make sure that the seats at the table are inclusive of the communities that the, the people are elected to represent, right? Um, how can you make sure that black and brown communities have this sense of, of civic power? There's, there's a lot of groups out there that are doing very good work in this area right now. 
And I, I think Sabil's perspective is, is particularly interesting because he kind of comes at it not only from the, the boots on the ground perspective, but he can also, he's, he's an academic by training as well, and he can take a step back and look at some of the, the theoretical framework and some of the history and some of the things that, that get in the way. I, I don't think that it's, at least from what I've seen in the kind of democracy reform movement, it's, I don't think it's an intentional by and large to, to keep certain people out or, or not have certain voices represented at that proverbial table. Um, I think it's just that, you know, an, an object in motion stays in motion. And, you know, it's it's sometimes easier just to keep the status quo going. And, and for a long time, that was upper middle class white people having all the all the power, all the all the seats at the table. And so that's one of the big currents in in democracy reform as a whole, whether it's gerrymandering or the the movement toward open primaries or voting rights or, or any any number of facets within this this big tent movement is no matter what we're doing, how can we make sure that it's inclusive and that we're accurately representing all of the voices that need to be part of these conversations? So that really gets us to the question of, I, I should have started with this question, you know, how do you define, how do you think the U.S. defines the term democracy? We call ourselves a democracy, but what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that from the, all the, the academics and the, the scholars that I've, I've talked to, there's, there's a couple threads of it. There is no one simple definition, which uh, as somebody who makes a podcast about democracy uh, is, is, is actually not a bad thing. It means there's a lot of topics that we can dive into every week. We've been doing our show for two years and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. But, um, you know, I think that there's one thread of it is about institutions. Um, I, I think, you know, scholars and, and other experts would characterize the U.S. as as a liberal democracy. It's small L liberal, meaning that um, you know the the people elect others to represent them in government, and there are institutions that act as checks on other institutions to help prevent any one group or any one faction, as the the founding fathers referred to them, from becoming too powerful. Um, so I think that is is a critical part of, of democracy in the U.S. Um, I think that there's always a tension between that kind of liberalism, you know, classical liberalism emphasis on institutions and the kind of pure people power elements of democracy. So what we might think of in the, the traditional like ancient Greek sense or or something like that, where, where the people are, are directly responsible for a lot of the, the, the legislative and other decisions that impact them. So there's, like I said, there's, there's that tension there. There are some people that want the process to be much more open, that want the people to have much more power, but then there are others that worry that, well, if, if, the, if too much power rests in the people, then that leads to, to populism, which can and lead to authoritarianism and fascism and all these things. So it's just this this constant conversation that's that's playing out. And I think it does sort of ebb and flow throughout the world and and even throughout throughout history in in the in the US. And it's also the the federalist aspect in in the US where individual states can make their own decisions on all sorts of, of different things. And some states have ballot measures where um, you know, the, the people can organize and get signatures and all these things to have questions put on the ballot in their particular state. That's how we saw, uh, we've seen medical marijuana pass that way in, in several states and, and other things like that. 
that the states are often called laboratories of democracy uh, for that reason. So these kind of social issues or, or changes start in the states and then kind of they scale up to the the national level. There's kind of a, a tipping point where if, if enough states pass something, it can sometimes spur other states or even, even the federal government to act. So that's a very long-winded way of saying democracy in the U.S. is complicated, and it's an ongoing conversation that lots of, of really smart people are sorting out every day. And it's really my 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 pleasure, and I'm really humbled to, to be able to, to talk with them on my show. Would it be an accurate statement to say that your guest, was it Sibio Roman, who wrote Civic Power, might contend that we don't live in a democracy if we've never had a multi-ethnic representation? And if the definition of democracy includes, essentially, in my interpretation of what you just said, is power sharing through elected representation, people's individual citizens' voices, and certain groups of people communities of color, et cetera, were not properly represented, then we've never had a democracy. We're just aspiring to it. You'd have to ask ask him that. I certainly don't want to put words in, in his mouth. But, um, you know, he, he does talk in his book about how, you know, it's, it's not, this is not a zero-sum game, right? It's not like we've communities of color have, have never had representation. Of course, there was the, you know, civil rights era and, 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 and all of these, these things. So there's certainly, um, there are a lot more civil rights now than there were even a generation or two ago. So um, yeah, I, I really don't know what, what he would say to, to that specific question. I, and I really don't want to speak for him in that regard. Getting back to the primaries, we're talking earlier about the census and the primaries. And in many states, they struggled with either postponing it or converting it to vote by mail only. One state in particular, Wisconsin, very controversially recently decided to still hold their primary election. And a lot of people uh, during their stay-at-home orders were standing in long lines, some with or without face masks. And that then led to report some reports that a lot of people who were the poll workers ended up becoming infected with COVID. If you can summarize through the collective knowledge that you've gathered from interviewing your guests, what are the basic issues with regard to why people support in-person voting versus why people support mail-in voting? And what are the you know pros and cons of both? Sure. Um, so we we did an episode uh, of our show back in March where we interviewed Charles Stewart from MIT, who is is a, a leading expert in this area. He's helping state governments navigate some of these very questions and and, and figure out what is going to be the best solution for them. Um, so there are several states. I, I was I was surprised to, to learn this that uh, Oregon and and Washington and, and there there might be one other that I'm forgetting, but um, at least those two have been voting exclusively by mail for a long time. Um, so everybody gets a ballot in the mail, and you can either mail it back or you can go on election day and actually drop off your ballot if you still want that experience of of actually casting your ballot, so to speak, on, on election day. Um, so there, there is an example of, of how this can work. Back to that point about the states being laboratories of democracy, right? So there are, there are examples of this working. Um, I, I think that a lot of the, um, 
the the skepticism or some of the the criticism comes from the propensity of, of voter fraud. So how Charles put it to me was that you can't control what happens to someone's ballot once it goes into their house. You know, someone else you live with could take it in and fill it out for you. Um, I guess that's that's kind of the the biggest thing is that you know the the person to whom the ballot is addressed could wind up not being. The, the person that ultimately fills out the ballot. Now, there's not much evidence of, of this happening, but, you know, it's, it's become a, a very politicized issue. And, and I think people are, are using this potential for fraud as an argument to say that we should not vote by mail, we should continue to cast ballots in person because of electoral integrity and, and security and, and all of these things. Um, but you have to to balance that, and I think states are trying to figure out how to balance that with some of the public health concerns. As you said, you know, poll workers tend to be predominantly older folks, at least where, where I am. I don't think there's anybody at, at my local precinct who's not a senior citizen. So this is obviously a very vulnerable population to, to COVID-19. So how do you keep not only the, the poll workers safe, but everybody who's voting on election day, you know, if, if everybody has to social distance and all of these things, you're going to be in line for a very long time. And um, on, on top of this, many states before COVID had already implemented changes to their election procedures to make them less vulnerable to, to hacking and interference and, and those kind of things. So the, the voting process was already going to take a little bit longer in some places anyway before all of this happened because states now have increased audit procedures and, and paper trails and all of these things to help prevent foreign interference and, and these sorts of things. But so coupling that with the pandemic and people being in line for, for long periods of time, um, what's that right balance to strike? Uh, it's also, I don't think, reasonable to expect that every single person is is going to vote by mail or uh, maybe have enough information to fill their ballot out in enough time to to get it back. So there has to be, I think, experts would agree, some version, at least for states where voting by mail is, is brand new. They can't go completely to voting by mail. There has to be some type of, of hybrid approach, um, at least for this coming fall. And then it, it really uh, remains to, to be seen what happens beyond that. Do you happen to know from covering this issue whether there's a difference in cost between exclusively voting by, by mail in terms of personnel versus staffing polls? I don't know that. No, I mean, I know that there's, you know, obviously you have to print and mail ballots. So that's that's its own cost as well. Um, there was money. There has been been money allocated in some of the uh, federal stimulus packages to support voting by mail. I think there's uh, a bill in the in the House right now that would allocate even more money for that. Um, but that would be distributed um, to all of the states and then on down to individual counties because they're the ones that actually carry out the, the voting processes. Um, so it all has to kind of be figured out here pretty quickly. Um, again, Charles from MIT, the expert I talked to, said that really mid-June is is when states need to, to decide um, what they're doing in the fall to allow enough time to print ballots, for example, or to get all of their, their messaging and their outreach ready to let their voters know, um, you know how they can cast their ballots in November. Federal elections or any elections, are these all fully state-funded? 
So the federal government doesn't allocate any proportion, any money to states. Like if they were to, let's just say voting by mail costs more money because of the printing and the postage. And I know that it's prepaid postage on, on, on returning those ballots and states didn't have enough money. Is it in the Constitution or anywhere else for the federal government to step in to ensure that there are elections? That's a great question. I, I wish I had the answer, but I, I don't know offhand. Okay. And did Charles mention what the actual fraud rate was, uh, voting by mail or in general? Because there was also lots of reports in the news, of course, by Trump that people can go to the polls and disguise themselves and change their clothes and go back. And so whether it's fraud at the actual ballot site or by mail, were there any statistics that your guests shared? Um, not to that level of, of specificity. I mean, I know that there have certainly been been studies um, about this, and but but I think that the point that that experts, um, you know, no matter if they're talking about mail-in voting or in-person voting, is that the instances of fraud are are very very low. I would be surprised if it was even like one or two percent. What sticks in my mind is that it's it's like less than one percent, but. If you're looking to make the case, all you really need is is one example, right? And you have something that you can use to to shape your narrative. There's, you know, if if your desire is to create this this narrative that, you know, voting is this fraudulent process, and you can find one or two examples that you can hold up and put in your outreach campaigns, it, it doesn't really matter. In, in some respects, what the actual numbers are, if, if people are kind of inclined to believe these, you know, handful of stories that are out there. Right. And I think people who are proponents of voting by mail like to cite the military as also another institution within the government besides two states, Oregon and Washington. I mean, the military has had voting by mail and if they can have it, why can't the rest of us, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Getting to COVID and your series covering COVID and its impact on democracy, one of the big issues I think that a lot of people struggle with is where to get information around COVID. You have differences within a state, obviously differences across the country, state by state, depending on the infection rates and the severity of the impact of COVID locally. And so Part of the response to that was Trump started having daily briefings and two of the folks on his coronavirus task force, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, were present. At some point, there was inconsistency in their presence. So how important is it to have experts or scientists whose experience and knowledge can speak to the severity of risk that we're facing and the appropriateness of the scope of the work and the response that we're offering federally when we are having these briefings. Uh, you know, expertise is is critical in in a democracy. Um, you can have differences of opinion, and that's that's expected, and and it's it's generally regarded as as a good thing. People can kind of have you know, share their ideas and and speak freely, but there has to be some set of objective facts and reality upon which those those opinions and those ideas are based. If there's not. I think we're we're seeing that play out where there's really two separate realities that are are, are happening uh, based on your your 
your political affiliation and, and the, the media sources you consume. And so how can we really have a, a self-governing society when there's not a common framework on which to base everything? Um, that's something else that, that a lot of people who are in, whether it's democracy reform or in academia studying these things, are very concerned about. Um, the the term that's often often used to describe it is epistemic polarization, um, coming from epistemology um, being like how we how we value where we find how we receive information, um, and then you know polarization obviously things moving moving apart. So the the sources upon which people get their information have diverged greatly, uh, at least at the at the national level. I think the the picture is a little bit different locally, but there are a host of other problems with. With, with local media that we can certainly talk about. But yeah, I mean, this notion, it's you, I guess it's it's a two-pronged thing, right? So you need to first have the experts and have people who are able to, you know, understand the the scientific or the the public health or the, the medical information in a, in a pandemic and be able to deliver that clearly and, and in a way that people can understand. But then you know, people have to believe it, right? I mean, you have to, you know, what what good is it to have the experts there if if no one's be- if if no one believes what they say? Um, and actually, that's what this week's episode of our show is is all about. Um, we we talk um, with somebody from the Huck Institute of the Life Sciences here at Penn State about um, how some of these conversations play out, these kind of dichotomy between public health and and politics, and the the point that I often hear academics make is that some of this is overblown. It's not really as bad behind the scenes as as the media might make it seem. And there's several reasons for that, whether it's it's profit incentive from the media, you know, they how do they keep attention and keep people glued to their screens, whether it's a TV or their phones or whatever, it's kind of uh, ramping up this this outrage and and stirring up these feelings of, of anger, right? There's also, I think it's in the, the political party's interest to amplify some of these divides, especially when we're like a several months out from an election. People need to understand what, what the difference is between the parties. Um, one of our former guests on our show, Frances Lee from Princeton University, makes this argument in, in her work that Congress really is not as gridlocked as it might seem, um, but it it's it very much in the the party's interest to amp up that sense of, of opposition and gridlock because it's good for keeping the the party structures and and those types of things moving forward and it's good to help drive people to the polls to vote for those particular parties yeah so there's there's lots of things that are all kind of coming to a head right now it's you know these issues that have been going on for for a while but also happening through this very new lens of a pandemic that we've never experienced or at least haven't experienced anything like this in any of our lifetimes. So um, it's all been really interesting to to observe and, and to talk to people who are out there trying to sort through these issues. This um, Frances Lee at Princeton, what was the criteria she was using to characterize Congress as not being as gridlocked as the public believes <laughs> or or the yeah. media makes it appear to be? Because is it based on the fact that any legislation that actually gets passed, of course, by definition, has to have bipartisan support, otherwise it wouldn't get passed? Or there's a lot of uh, memes out there around like the long list of legislation that stays on Mitch McConnell's desk and never gets 
presented for voting, including obviously the most uh, controversial is when the Supreme Court justice, right, issue where there was no voting at all for over almost a year. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, when, when I talked to Frances, she pointed to things like budget bills. And, and the other trend that she's observed is that, um, you know, bills that pass Congress are, are a lot bigger and a lot more complex than than they used to be. So even just passing uh, a spending bill, there's oftentimes lots of other things that are like attached to it or, or wrapped up in it. And those things, by and large, never get talked about um, or even you know, language like a rare show of bipartisanship is a phrase that that's used a lot in, in, in reports about Congress. And so that sets up this idea that, yeah, things don't get done. And, and even you just cited, you know, the 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 it's it's a lot easier for us to conjure examples of legislation that doesn't get passed or that passes one chamber, but not the other. And that I think feeds into this this narrative that we have about Congress being polarized and gridlocked. And that's that's not to say that that that's not. But I think that um, there's there's just more to the story than people looking at at Congress at kind of the surface level are, are led are, are led to believe you have to kind of dig in a little bit deeper to see the the amount of, of legislative activity and the, the bills that are being passed, the hearings that are being held that don't necessarily fit that gridlocked model. So getting back to the, the question I asked earlier about um, expertise and its role in democracy, there were lots of citizens who are pressing the media to not cover Trump's daily briefings because there was either contradictory statements that were made between you know the scientists that were present in his coronavirus task force and the statements that he made. Subsequently, when the scientists weren't present, he was making statements that were not accurate or not scientifically validated. So, for example, hydroxychloroquine. And so the pressure was to even not cover these briefings because they were harmful, because they were presenting, as you call it, was it, is it your phrase, infodemic, or is that coined somewhere else? No, uh, I first heard it. Uh, the someone from the World Health Organization um, said that, um, and then it, it's it's been used uh, talking about some of the, the the role that China has played in spreading misinformation about the virus. What is the role of the media then in ensuring that information is shared that is protecting public health, engaging in responsible public health behavior, versus Um, the tension between upholding our freedom of speech. Right. And and this also the the issue of the the briefing butts up against a lot of other longstanding norms in in journalism and and what's considered newsworthy and and what's not. I mean, it it harkens back to some of the earlier when when Trump first took office, there was a lot of pushback against, you know, every time Trump tweeted something, somebody would would write a story about it. And so that was seen as, yeah, maybe not being the best approach. There's not really much here that's in the in the public interest. And so news outlets had to figure out what that right balance was between, you know, letting the people know what the president is up to versus, um, you know, and he's the the leader of 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 the U.S. and of the free world. And in 
in some respects. So his words do matter. They do carry weight. But just that question of, of, of how much weight to apply to them is something that news outlets had to figure out. And I, I feel like, at least from my perspective as, as a media consumer and other experts that I've, I've read, you know, media, media scholars, people like that, they've it seemed like there had been a bit more of a, of a balance there, you know, pre, pre-COVID days. Um, but then, as, as you said, those, those briefings were kind of the same thing, but just in a, in a verbal form as opposed to on Twitter, right? So it is, it is the president. He is giving a news conference. His words do matter. But how do you balance that against the need to convey factual information and when his statements differ from those of the, the experts around him? Um, you know, the other thing that I, I think about a lot is that, you know, just because this is happening doesn't necessarily mean you have to, to watch it or to consume it, right? I mean, as, as media consumers, we have more choice now than we ever did before. And I think that there's some downsides to that, but there's also a lot of positives to that. There's this whole movement around um, solutions journalism, the slow news movement, where it's actually you consume less news, you take a step back from all of those, like, the, the 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 rat race of you know which politicians saying what when and you focus on kind of the the bigger issues and take deeper dives into things so um I think that you know some news outlets made the the, the decision to continue carrying them live some I think only aired dr Birch and dr Burks and, and dr fauci's statements live and so they made those decisions based on their editorial judgment, what they were hearing, I presume from their readers or their listeners or or what have you. Um, but but I would just remind folks that you as a as a news consumer have a lot of power to over what you do or or don't consume and and also how you how you react to it too. Um, it's really easy to get angry or you know go spout something off, but um, that is all within your control as a media consumer as well. But isn't that the problem, though? Because people view uh, media outlets as being politically divided as well, right? There's a whole spectrum of which publications and online uh, zines are, you know, skew more to the left or skew more to the right. And so if you're going to be someone who's of a particular political affiliation, your uh, choice of um sources are going to be very narrow and the narrowness may actually be in the in the political bias potentially that those reporters have um, or the editors have and so you're not really able to make free choice if you don't see past those political biases right Right. Yeah. And I, and I, and I realize that it, you know, people are, are busy, right. You don't have time to scour several different news sites or, you know, trying to figure out what every side is saying. Um, there, there are two, two resources I, I check regularly and, and, and would recommend for people that are wanting to understand the bigger picture of, of what the, the conversation is that's happening. Um, one is there's, there's a great, uh, newsletter that comes out every morning called the flip side, where they look at usually one, one issue a day, whatever the kind of big issue of the day is from the left and from the right. So they, they gather various sources from either side and they present both of them. Um, so you can see in some cases how different the, the, um, coverage is. And, um, it's just been really interesting to, to see that play out as I've, I've subscribed to that. Um, the other is something called all sides, um, which is a, a website that does kind of the same thing. Um, they'll show you the left, right, and the kind of center take on, on whatever, 
the issue is. And so this is also a, a big discussion playing out within journalism right now, like how is it time to to abandon this kind of both sides ism? Um, but you know, in in an ideal world, I guess maybe the the truth doesn't have a side, or you should always be looking to to the truth, regardless of of where that might land you politically. So these things are all all are all very intertwined, and um, people are having to figure them all out in in real time and in an environment where like the feedback is instant, right? Like you post something, you instantly hear from people on social media or or, or commenters or other people giving feedback. So if journalism was was a pressure cooker before it certainly is even even more so now so both sidism you mentioned just now what exactly is the media's role in not playing out that tendency i saw a meme recently i can't remember if it was a meme or some other description of how the media's both sidism usually plays out with there's something there's an issue and one side thinks the issue um, is bad and another's or behavior and the other side thinks the issue is good and then the media gives equal weight to the good and the bad and the proposal was no we shouldn't do that journalists responsibility is to explain why it's good and why it's bad and if it's bad to give reasons <laughs> to help activate the reader to um, using that information for potentially, you know, engaging in civic action. Yeah, I think that, as you said, there there is kind of a, a growing movement in that regard. And I think climate change is, is one example, I think, where you can really see how media outlets have pivoted from this, this approach. So they used to have, you know, whenever they were doing a piece on climate change, they would have to have a climate denier come on and, and talk about why they didn't think climate change was a thing, right? They've largely abandoned that. The, the scientific consensus is, is, is overwhelming that, yes, the planet is getting warmer. And yes, humans do have a role in that process. So um, I think that's place where you, you've seen it happen. There's a, a good book that I would uh, recommend listeners check out called The View from Somewhere, which is by a, a journalist named Lewis Raven Wallace. Um, he's Lewis used to work at, at NPR and then ended up getting fired. It's his story to tell, uh, and, and he does so very well in the in the book. But um, that incident led him on this journey of exploring the history of objectivity in news and uh, this, this kind of both sides model and, and how that really, he argues, was, was taken advantage of by forces on the right. You know, there's where the, the liberal media bias came from, right? So it, it, it came to be that anybody who wasn't giving credence to this very right wing, like minority point of view was seen as being biased. And that if you're loud enough about that, and you threaten to take funding away, or, or whatever the other ramifications are, people listen to that. And so that's where, uh, again, Lewis argues in this this book that people, you know, the that has shaped a lot of the way that media organizations think about their work and how standards in the industry were shaped, for example. And so it's been interesting to see as, you know, newer nonprofit sites come out as independent journalists make kind of stake out on their own through newsletters and things, how they're kind of abandoning abandoning a lot of this old orthodoxy that had existed for a generation or two in journalism. 
Thank you for that. I'm definitely going to check it out. Getting back to the word infodemic and of course pandemic, example of that is this video, which I have not personally watched because I'm trying to stay away from <laughs> not validated, you know, scientifically proven news sources, but there was a video called The Plandemic, which went around a few weeks ago and apparently got a lot of press. It was conspiracy based and a lot of it was. I don't want to repeat the conspiracies, but most of it, if not all of it, was proven to be false. And then either coincidentally, I can't remember before or after, various social media platforms had also come out with updated algorithms so that people who are spreading fake news, at least about just COVID, I don't know if it's about any other topic, but about COVID, um, had their posts identified in social media. So Facebook, for example, if there was some information like whatever it was, um, you could see it was grayed out and there was a sign that said this post is not true and here's the source to verify it. I mean, a lot of people might say it took so long and why only limit it to public health? There's a lot of information that's being spread everywhere that's not true and harmful. So what is the role of organizations like Facebook and um, other platforms that are communication-based in ensuring that information is accurate and, and scientifically, factually based. It's, it's been really interesting to, to watch the, the social media platform since 2016 change their processes. You know, Facebook, I know now, for example, partners with third-party fact-checkers, many of whom are current or former journalists. Um, but but I think you hit on the, the thing that they still haven't quite been able to get at, which is this is always like after-the-fact policing, right? So something is out there and it's shared and, and any, you know, some number of people have, have seen it. Um, there's there's a, a line that my co-hosts on our show sometimes say that, you know, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed. Or there's 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 several versions of that that saying, but they all kind of say the same thing is that lies and misinformation spread very quickly. And if you've already seen it, it's already part of your existing kind of cognitive beliefs, you know, especially if it's content that fits into your pre-existing beliefs, even if you, you know, seeing that it's been debunked or marked as fake might want to make you click on it more, right? If you think that somebody is trying to pull the wool over your eyes, or you're already kind of prone to that kind of conspiracy mindset to start with. So, you know, I think that the platforms from what I've, I've read, you know, they say that they are doing what they can, and they've also invested a lot in local and, uh, you know, national journalism. There's the, the Facebook News Project and all these things where they're giving money directly to newsrooms to help support on the ground coverage. And, um, you know, people tend to trust local sources more than they do national sources. So how can Facebook play a role in, in, in helping to, to prop up some of that um, local journalism? I don't know that we'll ever get to a, a space where, where Facebook, for example, would proactively prevent content from being posted until it had been verified or, or YouTube or, or what have you. I think that that goes against the, the ethic of, of the platform, not to mention the, the free speech considerations there. So um, I think that they'll probably try to get more sophisticated with the, the speed at which they review content that's flagged or the, the, the resources that they devote to bolstering the creation of credible fact-based information. But I, I don't think that they would ever want to be seen as censoring or, or anything in that regard. 
Okay, so let's turn to the protesters. In a lot of states across the country, there's been rising dissent around the um, following stay-at-home and lockdown orders. And in Michigan, for example, there were armed protesters who went to the state capitol, but also went to, uh, to stand outside the governor's home. And now I believe she's issued an order where being armed uh, in that building is no longer allowed. You can't carry a weapon into the state capitol. What is the role of these protesters in either upholding or challenging our democracy? The, the right to, to organize and, and protest and dissent is in, in some respects at the very core of, of democracy. It's, you know, basic First Amendment kind of stuff, right? So I think that that's, uh, you know, what what these these, these protesters would, would see themselves as doing. And there's certainly nothing that, that can really stop them unless they're, you know, they actually verge into something that is a, is a crime that they could be, be arrested for. But so that's, there has to be, um, you know, kind of kind of a hands off off approach. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's, it's hard to say it's I think the the temptation is to just paint people with with a broad brush all the time. And I think that's it's really nuanced, uh, just in terms of what might motivate people, there's people have lost their jobs and they feel that they need to get back to work. And it's you know, people that already feel like the, the, the government has left them behind or isn't sensitive to their concerns. It's, it's a lot of elites and, and all of these things. Um, and, and so there's, and there's also, I think, wanting to, you know, bringing the, the guns and all these things from, from, from what I understand, you know, talking to people who have, have covered some of these events, there's, you know, they want the, the media attention. They want to try to build support for their cause, right? So they're going to do whatever is going to get their picture taken or get them tweeted out to, you know, get a tweet that goes viral or all these things um, because they're trying to build support for this cause and have it have legs beyond just these individual protests. I think there's have been comparisons drawn to the early days of the Tea Party, right? So taking these, these demonstrations and then building a larger grassroots movements around them, um, which all of that is is hallmark part of, of our of our democracy, but adding in again with the, the COVID element of the, the, the public health concerns and um, not respecting expert guidance and all these things just has this this new this new wrinkle to it that people are still trying to figure out what the the best way is to handle it, it it will i think be interesting to see now that states are starting to reopen how much this activity continues or whether this movement does really have legs beyond this particular point in time so before i get to our concluding engendered questionnaire questions i wanted us to end with something positive so i want to give you an opportunity to talk about what states are doing to keep our votes safe sure um so i i live in pennsylvania it's been great to see some of the actions that have been taken here by our our governor and and secretary of state to um, open up access to mail-in voting. Um, I did a a mail-in ballot for the first time um, just a a couple of weeks ago. Um, You know, Pennsylvania, for for a long time, um, you had to have an excuse or, or reason to get 
a, a, a mail-in ballot. They've opened it up where anybody can request one now, um, which they had planned to do this before COVID hit, but it seemed like very good timing for, for them to, to do this now, looking back on it. And as I said before, I think states really have taken this issue of election security seriously. And it's something that's happened on a, on a bipartisan basis to people working together to add, you know, additional audit procedures and paper trails and, and these types of things going back to paper ballots in some cases from from electronic records, or at least having electronic machines that also give you a, a, a verifiable paper trail. Um, so wanting to make sure, you know, pre COVID that everything was going to be safe for the election in November. Um, and I think that we tend to hear a lot about the outliers in, in this regard. So Wisconsin, for example, are the places where there, there are these these tensions. But, you know, there are, I don't know, 45, 40 other states out there that are mostly doing what makes sense and doing the right thing. So um, I try to keep that, that perspective in mind as well, um, that, you know, by and large, States and and the and the people that run elections want to make sure that the most people can vote in as safe a way as as possible. It's not going to happen everywhere again because of that fifty state laboratories of, of democracy thing we've we've been talking about. There's going to be varying levels of thoughts on access and all of these things. But I think by and large, states want to do right by their people and do right by their voters. We've come to the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? From a, a democratic perspective, thinking about democracy, we're, we're coming up on the, we're, we're in the 100th anniversary of the, of the 19th Amendment. So thinking back about women getting access to 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 the right to vote and how much empowerment has has come with that but there's still a long way to go and I think we're seeing women taking the lead uh, you know a lot of the people out there fighting for some of these democracy reforms are women we've seen the the women's march we've um, a lot of people in the fight to end gerrymandering, for example, or um, a lot of grassroots organizers in general, they're, you know, retirees and, and former PTA moms. And, uh, you know, one of one of our, our guests that I interviewed described them as little gray haired ladies with clipboards that are out there doing this hard work of democracy. And so I think that every, every woman that, that gets out there is is reminding people that, you know, women have a have have a voice and have a very loud voice and a very big, big role to play in, in moving issues of democracy forward. What gives you hope? Oh, I used to ask this question on, on my show. I mean, I think that I take hope in the fact that people are curious and they want to, they generally want to understand what's going on. I've heard that time and time again from, from listeners of, of our show. We're not this, the, these kind of like red and blue or one issue, you know, voters that, that the, the media might, might like to, to portray us as nobody fits neatly in, into those buckets, or at least most people don't, I don't think. Um, and so it, it, it takes hope. It, it, it gives me hope to know that, um, you know, people want to learn. And um, I feel really, really grateful to be able to, to make a podcast that helps give people the opportunity to do just that. And the final question, 
What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Oh, wow. That is um, pretty far outside of, of, of my wheelhouse. I mean, I guess I just, I think a lot about just having having a sense of grace and compassion with, with one another. Um, if, if listeners out there uh, are familiar with the, the Pantsuit Politics podcast, they talk a lot about grace. And I, I think that just that idea of, of giving people grace and um, just just approaching things from from a place of kindness or a place of hope as, as opposed to a place of anger um, can definitely shift your mindset, whether that will end violence and all those things. I, I'm not really qualified to say, but um, I, I think that, you know, to the extent that your mindset can impact your actions, I, I would certainly hope that it would. Thank you, Jenna, for being on our show. I look forward to sharing all of these rich resources with our listeners. Oh, um, thanks so much for having me, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.